Well, I invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles or turn in your digital device, if you prefer, to First uh, Samuel chapter 30. First Samuel chapter 30. There are Bibles at the end of the pews if you uh, if you need to grab one. First uh, Samuel, that the ninth book of the Old Testament, just a little bit after Joshua and Judges, a little bit before First and Second Kings. And wow, can you believe it? Started back in February working through this book. I know you thought we were crazy. We all thought we were crazy. But here we are in the last uh, two weeks. We've got uh, chapter 30 this week, chapter 31 uh, next week. And then perhaps in uh, in 2016, we'll we'll catch back up and, and get uh, get the rest of the story. We're going to be moving, I think, on uh, either on the 9th of August or on the 16th into a series of uh, through first Corinthians. But uh, but boy, just to, to remind us again, summertime, people coming in out of, out of town. So we may have, uh, you know, lost a little bit of the, the forest for the trees uh, or, you know, we just we just want to help ourselves remember the overall story as we come into the to the end of it here. Uh, we began a, a, a series on a book about Samuel that's about the kings ultimately about God's kingship, but about kings uh, in the Old Testament, uh, traditionally and typically men uh, serving in that role and a role of power. And we started that book with sweet Hannah, who would become the mother of Samuel. But at the beginning of the, the book was not even able to conceive Samuel. And there was a, a purpose in Samuel coming into the world. And that was uh, at least part in part that he would proclaim the message of God. To those who would lead. Right. It would do no good to have a king, someone raised up to be a king or a leader if they didn't lead with the word of God and with the truth of God's word. Samuel, we know in the so in the first third or so of the book of first Samuel, we read and learn about him coming into the world and being raised up as sort of the last judge, the first prophet, if you will. And then we saw in the middle of the book of 1 Samuel, the middle 10 chapters or so, that a a king comes into play. And we saw that, uh, you know, God certainly wasn't uh, opposed inherently to the idea of a king. We know that Jesus is the king of kings, but uh, that there was great concern because the people wanted a king for all the wrong reasons. They wanted a king to kind of be like the folks around them. And to maybe have some worldly power, they saw it as a way of personal advantage, not as a way necessarily for God to be leading them through an earthly leader. God had his purposes. They had their purposes. And then we saw saw he was a mixed bag, wasn't he? He'd been a mixed bag. And uh, and is so fearful at points, struggling so much to really trust God. Great to. personal abilities from his appearance to his you know stature to those kind of things but those actually worked to his detriment because we saw that he was a person that really trusted in himself and had not learned to rely on the lord and that actually weakened him we see him make several disastrous decisions out of fear and then we come into uh, i guess the mid to latter part of first samuel we saw this young one david come on the scene Uh, Being selected out, defeating Goliath, being anointed, uh, even coming into the house of the King Saul to be sort of his second in command and huge success militarily. But as his successes rose, so did Saul's jealousy and conflict emerged 
And for basically the last 10 chapters of first Samuel, Saul is just out to kill David and David is on the run trying to survive. And at moments he seems to make good decisions and moments we're not sure. But uh, in all of it, he is trying not to fight against Saul or kill Saul. He even has several opportunities to and shows tremendous faith by not doing so. And in the last, uh, so in those last chapters, and we saw this sort of coming into where we are today last week with our guest preacher, Hunter Twitty. I I hope you all enjoyed having him back with us. Uh, So exciting to see how God's worked in his life. And he was on our staff working with our youth early on and now ordained and serving in ministry at another uh, local church here. So I hope that was encouraging for you all to see him as well as hear God's Word, But we see now, as we saw last week, Hunter reminded uh, you all, I was out of pocket, that uh, that these 600 men with David and their families have now come into uh, foreign territory. They're in with the Philistines, with this King Achish, and they're, they've even got their own little pad that they've got carved out for them, this place called Ziklag. And it works out pretty nicely so far. It's been working out well for David, because not only they've got a place to live and he's protected from Saul... But he's able to pretend like he's going and fighting against Achish's enemies, fighting against Israel, when in fact he's going to fight the enemies of Israel that go back all the way to the time of Joshua. So he's still kind of carrying out God's will, even in this crazy uh, refugee situation that he's living in. In all of this, we see God's sovereignty, even in what we're going to see in this chapter, which is now... Achish calling David's bluff, saying, I'm going to fight the Israelites and you're coming with me. Before David was able to operate kind of under the radar, Achish doesn't know what's going on. Now they've been marching out together. They uh, would go off and and go to uh, to fight God's people. And yet God intervened, showed his sovereignty by having the very Philistine commanders that really should have sort of welcomed the help of David. They said, no, we don't like him. We don't trust him. So send him back. As they go back, they find out that uh, that in the midst of this, another group of people, the Amalekites, have come to Ziklag, have attacked, have raided, have destroyed, have hauled off all their wives, all their family. And, and that's where we come into our story today. So look with me and we're just going to read select verses, starting in verse four. We see their response, David and his men, to coming into Ziklag and seeing the devastation and realizing that their families have been hauled off. Starting in verse 4 of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David and David inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? The Lord answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. 
and then jumping on down past where they get some help from an uh, Egyptian refugee of this conflict to to track down the Amalekites. Verse 16, we pick up, says, and when he had taken him down, this uh, this assistant, this guide of theirs, behold, they, the Amalekites, were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds. The people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. And then two more verses for us to look at. Verse 26, when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah. And then the very last part of verse 31, we'll skip the description of all the places. These were all the places where David and his men had roamed. Let's pray again together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your word. We ask now that you would teach and minister to us in our lives, Lord. Bless us today from these ancient things that took place for David and his men and these battles of old. Would you show us ways that you are at work in our lives today and allow us to receive that work? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Peters family has gotten hooked on a new TV show. You know, it's tough to find stuff really to watch as a whole family today on uh, on TV. And and I know there's been some other survival shows. I know there's been some where there's competitions and I know there's been some where the folks are just actually really by themselves, or at least one guy that was a survival guy out by himself, no camera crews and so forth. But this new show alone, have you seen it? It's pretty good. I got an amen almost there. It's pretty good. I mean, ten guys out uh, dispersed across a large landscape of Vancouver Island, I think it's called, uh, up north of Seattle there. One of the wettest places, uh, 120 inches of rain it gets each year. Hard to start a fire in that. Uh, wolves, uh, a thousand or so wolves, uh, 2,000 bears on the island that they know of, several hundred cougars as well. They're out there. They get to take ten items with them. Ten survival items with them. We're enjoying watching it. Interesting, and you can catch up on it. I won't tell you who, but I'll tell you this. What's fascinating, within six days, six drop out. The prize money, half a million dollars. All you got to do is outlast those other ten guys, and you got a half a million dollars within six days. Six guys around. Now, these are guys that, uh, you know, no offense to any of the rest of you, that are not like you and me. They actually believe that they can go do this and have some kind of skill that, you know, gets them in their mind that they can go do it. They're out of it that quickly. You know what one of the chief things is that they struggle with? A lot of them have families. A lot of them have wife or one's got a wife that's expecting. I imagine that conversation. That'd be an interesting one to pull off. I'm going to be gone. It might be 10 months, might be you know, a year. Well, hopefully I'll be back for the baby. But they're alone. And the thing that uh, drives them most crazy and seems to weaken most of them is not just being out there alone, not just the survival issues, but missing the folks back home. 
concerned about it, concerned about their well-being. See this as we come into our passage today in a couple of different ways. And, and really, if you want to follow along in your worship guide, you can. There's a sermon note section at the end of, of the worship guide. And, and this main idea, maybe that'll, that'll help us, it's not going to be a shocker just from us reading the verses a minute ago, that God graciously leads when we inquire of him. And we're, we're going to pack that today. But we need to see the situation that David is in off the bat. I mean, he really is sort of alone. And he's increasingly alone. He's not only alone, but there's great concern for his family and the well-being of those he loves and cares about. And the same thing for his men. The tension has to be unbearable. I mean, imagine his situation. He goes from being able to kind of hide out among the Philistines and pull this off for a while. Then he's, I mean, imagine that phone call, if you will. All right, David, time to go fight your own people now. Achish calls his bluff. He goes out. Imagine the relief then that the Philistines say, now, we don't want him along. Send him back home. Man, the Lord was just he was all over that. And he he took care of that for me. And then back and to find their meantime, his own families, the loved ones have been hauled off their community, their town, if you will, even though it's temporary, has been devastated. His sorrows evident. Uh, Maybe maybe we don't deal with any crisis on this level right but we do face struggles in our life don't we places where we feel alone places where we have sorrow and weeping maybe maybe things going on with loved ones and with family that are burdens to us and that are heavy upon us maybe things that are going on just in the world around us i think we've all seen you know planned parenthood videos the last week We've all seen things in our culture being redefined that shouldn't be redefined. All of these things are distressing for us. They bring us to a place of sadness. They bring us to a place of crisis. So let's take a look and see what David does and maybe map it on to whatever our maybe personal struggles are. Maybe it's just a struggle to walk with the Lord. You know, that's just a battle for me every week. Staying in step with him, not wandering off to the side paths that I think will bring delight and hope and joy. Instead, finding my delight in him and then increasing, you know, my obedience with him. Those are things I'm not good at. I struggle with. It's a it's a crisis in a sense each uh, each week, each day, maybe for you, too. So what does David do in this situation? What can we learn from him? Take a look at verse four. First thing we see. As they're coming in, David and his men come into the city. They found it burned with fire, their wives and daughters taken captive. That's verse 3, I'm sorry. And then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. You know, we really don't see as much of it. And we, I probably should have done a better job bringing in some of the Psalms into our sermon series. But, you know, if you take a step out of the narrative of First Samuel and just dip your toe into any of the Psalms that David writes. You see that he was a man of great passion. You know, he was engaged with the Lord, the ups and downs. Now, you know, not everybody has to have the same level of emotion. I'm not saying that. But one of the things we see here, just like we saw back early with Jonathan in David's friendship with Jonathan, this man is important for us to hear. We saw with Jonathan earlier that David reminds us that it's okay and actually fitting to have really deep friendships. To actually love another person deeply as a friend. And that that's okay for, for men to do. We actually need that. It's, it's healthy and wholesome and good. 
Here we see a sort of similar lesson from his his crying out and his weeping. You know, it's a, it's it's OK. I think for many of us as as men, we, we try to keep our emotions together and so forth. But there are things we ought to be upset by. And that's OK for tears to come down our face, for us to be uh, even in a place of of weeping. We're reminded that that's fitting. There's nothing unmanly about that. I mean, who's more manly than David? You know, he killed Goliath. And yet he's able to explore that range of emotions and really express it in its fitting. So we see that we we see, too, that this is uh, personal. Um, we're, we're told here in verse five that David's uh, two wives. Now, we see right there off the bat. I mean, the first thing that might jump out to us is, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> David. This is, you know, again, evidence that David's not quite tracking with the design plan in Genesis of Adam and Eve and what Jesus reiterates later in the Gospels. OK, so we know that we recognize that. But that's not actually the main point here. The main point, that's true, but the main point is it's personal. His own family's been affected by it and he's impacted by that. And then it's personal in an additional way. Look down at verse six. It says David was greatly distressed. So he's already upset. And then all the by the way, the people are thinking about killing him. Now, this really isn't that shocking. I'm impressed that the 600 guys and their families have hung with him this long. Right. Through all the caves and the mountains and the roaming for endless period of time. I think it's been over a year, as I recall from one chapter earlier. That's a lot of time to be on the move. And, and yet the, the, the kind of final straw has come. Like, David, we trusted you to go out here to this place. We trusted you that this would work out. And now look what's happened to our family. So they're, they're, they're furious. They're upset. And it's a reminder uh, for us, you know, when maybe there's a team that we lead at work. Of folks or folks that you supervise or direct. Maybe it's just our leadership in home with family as parents here. Maybe you're involved in leadership in some way at church, a small group or in some other capacity leading that, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. It can be an alone. It is an alone experience sometimes, especially when our decisions don't go as well as we've hoped. So David's in a situation that we can relate to collective sorrow personal anguish, discouraging mutiny from his men. These are things he's facing. But it's interesting to note what David does. That's so different from at least what I do so often when I'm in crisis or struggle or difficulty. Did you read that verse at the last part of that paragraph? Verse, last part of verse 6. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Okay? He didn't sugarcoat what was happening. What was happening was tragic, difficult, painful, uh, a struggle. And, and so he recognized that face on. He didn't just brush on past it and pretend like it was in existence. I'm just going to pull myself together and go on forward. Uh, he didn't wallow in it and sit in it and just get over totally overwhelmed by it. He strengthened himself in the Lord. He said, there's only one place I know that I can get this strength to go on with my life. It's interesting how that plays out for us, too, when we're, um, you know, sort of the the wallowing type or when we're in a wallowing mood or mode like like we sometimes probably all get. Um, the, the, the bootstrappers around us, right, the people that like to pull themselves out the bootstrap and seem to always be able to charge forward and get themselves together. 
we, we feel like uh, those folks are maybe a little insensitive, uncaring, you know, not recognizing what's going on with us. When we're the bootstrapping kind of folks where we can just seem to, you know, a lot of times pull ourselves up and get going, we sort of look at those who are maybe struggling pretty difficult and maybe almost look like they're wallowing in it as a little bit weak, maybe just not able to get it together. But as I said, isn't it a powerful thing to see what happens with David? And this is this is he's broken. He's distressed. He's weeping. There's no there's no. Uh, dismissing it at all. It's very deep. And, and yet he's able, through the strength of the Lord, to move on forward. So it's a good thing for us to think about today. How do, how do we handle the crises we deal with? How do we handle the different ways that each of us tend to deal with those crises? And if we're the bootstrapping kind of type, uh, where are we in error with that? And trying to just press on without really drawing strength from the Lord. And if we're sort of the wallowing type or, or just in a wallowing mode, where is that place where the Lord wants to give us strength? And maybe we're not looking for it, not receiving it. It's a challenge there for us. Second thing we see that's sort of the centerpiece of the passage, actually, is that we see David inquiring of the Lord. Look at verses seven and eight. The uh, he has the. Priest bring in this thing called the ephod. And I tell you, I did a bunch of research on this uh, this week, and I can tell you what this thing looks like. Sort of picture a bulletproof vest, you know, like sort of straps over. So not like a full garment, but with a plate on the front and kind of a plate on the back uh, made, though, out of some sort of uh, cloth or leather or whatever. And then with some ornate uh, details to it, gems and so forth woven into it. So I can I can tell you what it looks like. Everybody knows what it looks like. And what I studied and researched, nobody really understands how exactly that thing, you know, this sort of vest helps David to know the Lord's will here. We don't really exactly know that. All we know is that it it does. But, of course, the main point is here is not necessarily how he does it, but the fact that he does inquire of the Lord. Right. And we saw let's let's kind of review a little bit. Walk with me. And, and forgive me if, if you've been here every single week this summer. I know we've circled around to the theme of figuring out how do we discern God's will? How do we understand his direction and guidance on something? So I know we've circled around it a couple of times, but folks have been in and out. And here it is again in the passage. So let's let's chat for just a moment again about this. We know, again, in David's situation in particular, that there's other actions he takes that are commendable, like him fighting Goliath, defeating Goliath. Where it doesn't tell us that he inquired of the Lord. We know other situations where he seems to be uh, stepping out of step with the Lord, where he doesn't inquire of the Lord. Okay, so that's kind of a neutral thing. But here we have a case where he does inquire of the Lord and he sees great success. Okay, so regardless of what we might conclude about those other examples with David, this one is one where it's crystal clear. He inquires of the Lord and there's great blessing that comes in his life because of it. He seeks God's face. And I just want it to be an opportunity for us to be reminded today of the beauty of inquiring of the Lord, of asking him to lead and direct in our lives. Now, again, as I said, we've circled back to this a couple of of times. You know, I don't have an ephod. I don't think you have one, 
Apparently, even if we didn't have one, I don't know that any of us would know how to operate it, right? To get the answer we wanted. So God was revealing this. He was working through the prophets for this particular time for David. And and so we got to be careful here of trying to map onto our experience exactly the same thing that happens with David. That being said, the, the main issue, the main way we can apply this is to seek God, to seek him out. So, again, you know, we we can pray for that uh, parking space. Let's walk through some examples and make sure we know what we're talking about. We can pray for that parking space and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and it's a sign of trusting that we believe God's uh, leading us. But at some point when we're driving around the parking lot endlessly for that particular spot and the gas tank runs out, you know, at some point we have to say, well, maybe God just wants me to take a step. Right. Or, or maybe the, the same thing was sort of uh, trying to find a, a church home and a place to connect. I know we have folks that have been kind of visiting around. We want to look around and try to find a, a place to connect. We want to pray for God to lead. But uh, at some point, we got to put, you know, put down some roots. And there's, you know, you find a perfect church, go there, and it won't be perfect anymore. I know, you know, as, as a founding member of this church, I, I helped cause that problem. You know, it's not perfect because I'm here. Uh, we're all broken We're all in need. So uh, waiting for that sort of quiver in our liver can be an endless process. At some point we pray, we trust, we know that God is leading us and we take steps of faith and we realize he's sovereign. He'll slam that door right in our face. If he doesn't want us to go there, he'll slam that door right in our face. Uh, Vice versa. Let's let's kind of turn it around. The other way this this plays out is when we think about the impact of God's word and the clear revelation that we have here. Again, we can get all tied up. We want to inquire of the Lord, but we can sort of get in a holding pattern where we don't act at all. So we shouldn't turn things around on God and say, hey, I've, I've prayed about reaching out to people for Christ. But I just I really don't feel like it. You know, pray for God to really get me motivated. I don't, I don't really feel like doing it. Or nobody's really come to me lately and said, would you tell me about Jesus? Would you tell me about your relationship with Jesus? Would you invite me and tell me how to get to your church? I'd like to come. You know, nobody's nobody's done that before in a while. Well, obviously, there we're taking things that God clearly gives us in his word. He says to reach out to others around us. And we're sort of in a holding pattern, waiting for him to reveal something that he's already really Revealed to us and demonstrated maybe the same thing we have uh, not not with something proactively that we should be doing that we're not, but with something we shouldn't be doing that we are maybe in our areas of sin. Right. Our greed, our anger, our lust, our vanity, our judgmentalism, whatever those things are that we wrestle with regularly. And we say, well, you know, I prayed about that thing. But God, you know, he he hasn't given me the ability to to deal with it. So I'm acquired of the Lord. But God hadn't really shown me how to deal with it. Well, God's the scriptures give us a pathway, right, for delighting more in Christ, welling up in relationship to him so that we have that expulsive power of a new affection. And it's driving out those things. We don't have to wait around. All of that being said, what a powerful thing it is to inquire of the Lord about those things that we're struggling with about the crises we're facing, about the issues we see in our culture, in our church, in our own family. And we see here that David knows he's got to get strength from the Lord. And the only way he can do that is to really inquire of him. It's interesting to see what he does next, as simple as it may seem to us. When David hears, then what? 
He goes. He does it. I'm not really sure, I guess, what the alternative was going to be. Right? These are fighting guys. I figured they were going to go try to do something. Right? And so it seems like ultimately it's an opportunity for David. He inquires of the Lord. And we didn't have time to read it. But just like that, this Egyptian guy comes along. Not even from their area, from another country. He'd been captured by the Amalekites. And he says, man, uh, I know where the Amalekites are. I'll take you there. You promise not to let anybody kill me, and I'll take you right there. He sees an answer to that prayer and that inquiry, and David follows it. He says, okay. So that's, that's one of the things that happens for us when we're inquiring of the, of the Lord. Then, we're, then we are sensitive to when we do see God directing our path. When we see those open doors and then we're kind of prepared and ready to step through them. We see that happen with David here for sure. Last thing we see in these verses, and it's a huge one as well, is uh, verses 18 to 20. Again, we're in chapter 30 of uh, of 1 Samuel. Verses 18 through 20. It describes all of these things that David is able to recover. So he goes and again, we see clearly the Lord is with him because he's able to recover not only the people and so forth, but all the possessions as well. And then it's fascinating to see what he does with it. He goes and he finds those folks. That's why I read verse 26 and verse 31. He finds those folks who had helped to shelter him, who had been a blessing to him. And he says, okay, now I've, I've inquired of the Lord. I was at the bottom of the pit here. God's done a work. He's, and, and he's recognized these things have come back to me by the Lord's hand. And I want to bless you all who have blessed me. Right? He's ready to seek to be a blessing to others because he sees where it has come. It's interesting. This uh, last week, I was at a gathering and I ran into a guy that I don't really know all that well. But um, I... I have not seen him in years. I know uh, that his marriage ended due not to his own choosing. And I know probably more about that than he knows that that I know. And I know it was horrible. And and so, you know, here's a guy that's probably got reasons to be down, you know, down in the pit a bit. Um, I noticed while we were interacting that the left side of his body was doing this number, right? And, and, and you know, maybe when you all are around people and you notice something like that, you know, you're like me, you sort of, let's just try to ignore that there's maybe something going on there, right? And, and I guess it's sort of pastoral privilege maybe that sooner perhaps than others would, I, I feel I'm at liberty to say, hey, what's going on there? What, what is this condition? What is this problem? He said, well, I have, I have Parkinson's. And I said, man, that's got to be hard because I knew, you know, what all he'd already been through. And then I see that he's, you know, he's basically he's not able to function with that left side. And he said it, it can be real difficult at times. Sometimes it comes and goes. And he said, but you're going to be amazed at this. I said, oh, really, really tell me. He said, I was a pilot. That was my profession. I had never known that about. Him. He said, I was, um, you know, it was a couple years ago, this Parkinson's thing's thing started to set in and and it was starting to affect my ability to fly a plane. He flew like a commercial charter things for corporations and so forth. Not not the big daddies. Don't worry. Don't worry. So but he, he was flying these and he knew he needed to say something to his boss. Right. 
He had hidden it for a while, but it was getting to be enough that he knew it was. It wasn't anywhere near as bad as it was then, but, he, you know, he's, he knew it was it was getting bad. And so he, he finally one day, you know, he said he prayed about it and he talked to his boss and his boss said, well, you got to be done today. You can't fly anymore. And this this guy that I was talking to shared, he said uh, the next day, the plane that I was supposed to be on. I don't know. Y'all may remember it a few years ago. It was up in northern Alabama. Uh, mechanical problem flipped over everybody on board killed. It was fascinating. I, I, I said that, that is amazing to see how God was, you know, protecting you, you know, with another story for those in the plane crash, obviously. But for this guy, God was protecting him, even through something that just seemed pretty difficult, seemed like a pretty challenging struggle for him. But God's working out those things, right? If there's nothing else we see through First Samuel as we're coming into our last couple chapters here, you know, we've asked this question. It's been in the worship guide each week in the announcement section. Who is king? That's our question in First Samuel. We all know the answer to it. God is king. But we're learning that, aren't we, in our lives? We're seeing that through David and through the ups and downs that he goes through. And let me just end with this. Don't we see it also with Christ? With the one to to whom all of this stuff with David points. Think about Jesus. Think about these categories. Crisis, inquiry, following, and blessing. Real quick with Christ. Crisis. He's got to go to the cross. He's got to suffer and bear the punishment for sin for all of humanity. We know he felt deeply about our condition. He talked about uh, those going out, you know, that the people around were like sheep without a shepherd. And that he was moved from his gut, it says in Matthew 9, for, for our condition. We see in, uh, in elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus saw Jerusalem, the people of God, and he wept. He was greatly saddened over the situation there. He was disturbed for our condition. His disciples abandoned him, denied him, betrayed him. So you want to talk about somebody that's familiar with crisis with difficulty. He knew it. Inquiring. We don't see any ephod being used there, but we know he fell on his knees in the garden and pleaded with the Lord, even pleaded, hey, God, if there's a way you can take away this cup, you know, the cup symbolizes like our cup here symbolizes the the wrath of, of God poured out. He says, if someone could take this away. Yet not your will, not, not, not my will, but your will be done. We see that in his following. He follows. He goes through. He does what he needs to for you and for me. And then lastly, blessing. Right? Through what he does, through walking in step with the Lord, through crisis, inquiring, praying to the Lord, and then following, obeying the Lord, he's able to pour out tremendous blessing upon us. He's the... The the King of kings and the Lord of lords, all this is manifested in. But those things that he endures and goes through, he wants to map on to your life and to mine as well for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, we uh, confess that with the twists and turns of life and our struggles and even our uh, decisions we make, we... uh, we wrestle, Lord, we, we wrestle when we face crisis. We're just, it's easy for us to be overwhelmed, and some things are overwhelming. 
Lord, we wrestle to uh, remember to strengthen ourselves in you. I pray today that we'd be a stronger, not in ourselves, but stronger in you as individuals, as a church body. Father, we uh, confess that often when we inquire of you, we're not really ready to follow you. We find a lot of reasons not to do it. And so we pray that you would help us to follow you, especially those things clearly revealed to us in your word that we don't have to guess at, that we can know and do. And then, Lord, I pray that when we see those things, that that then we would have a vision for how you want to actually use us, even in just, you know, struggles and difficulties we're going through or recently went through to somehow be a blessing to others for your glory. Thank you that Christ did all of those things so perfectly. We pray in his name. Amen.